Section 3 of Marvels of Scientific Invention. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Marvels of Scientific Invention by Thomas W. Carbon. The Fuel of the Future. We now enter for a while the realm of organic chemistry a branch of knowledge which is of supreme interest since it covers the matters of which our own bodies are constructed the foods which we eat and the beverages which we drink besides a host of other things of great value to us although the old division of chemistry into inorganic and organic is still kept up as a matter of convenience the old boundaries between the two have become largely obliterated. The distinction arose from the fact that there used to be, and are still to a very great extent, a number of highly complex substances, the composition of which is known, for they can be analyzed or taken to pieces, but which the wit of man has failed to put together. Consequently, these substances could only be obtained from organic bodies. The living trees or animals could in some mysterious way bring these combinations about, but man could not. The molecules of these substances are much more complicated than those with which the inorganic chemist deals. The important ingredient in them all is carbon, which with hydrogen nitrogen and oxygen almost completes the list of the simple elements of which these marvelous substances are compounded. In some cases, there appear to be hundreds of atoms in the molecule. If one takes a glance at a textbook on organic chemistry, the pages are seen to be sprinkled all over with C's and O's, N's and H's, with but an occasional symbol for some other element. Another feature of this branch, which cannot fail to strike the casual observer, is the queer names which many of the substances possess. Trimethylanilin, triphenylmethine, and mononitrophenol are a few examples which happen to occur to the memory, and they are by no means the longest or queerest sounding. Another peculiarity about these organic substances is that a number of them, each quite different from the others, can be formed of the same atoms. Certain atoms of hydrogen, sulfur and oxygen form sulfuric acid, and under whatever conditions they combine, they never form anything else. On the other hand, there are 66 different substances all formed of 8 of carbon, 12 of hydrogen, and 4 of oxygen. This can only mean that, in such cases, as the latter, the atoms have different groupings, and that, when grouped in one way, they form one thing, in another way, some other thing, and so on. This explains the extreme difficulty which the chemist finds in building up some of these organic substances. 
every now and again we are startled by some eminent man stating that the time will come when we shall be able to make living things when the laboratory will turn out living cows and sheep birds and insects even man with a mind and soul of his own yet one cannot but feel that such men no matter how great their authority are simply pulling the public's leg to use a colloquial expression for they hopelessly fail to make many of the commonest things in many cases where they wish to produce an organic substance they have to call in the aid of some living thing to do it for them even if it be but a humble microbe for the microbes perform wonderful feats in chemistry far surpassing those of the most eminent men hence the latter very sensibly use the microbe employ it to work for them just set things in order and then stand by while the microbe does the work thus most things can be analyzed that's to say taken to pieces while many things can now be synthesized that is to say built up from their constituent atoms but still a great many remain and among them the most important the synthesis of which completely baffles man one of the most useful and widespread substances for example cellulose is at present at least utterly beyond us we do not even know how many atoms there are in the cellulose molecule the molecules may for all we know contain thousands of atoms indeed many of these organic matters have very large molecules and even if the chemist were able to make all kinds of organic matter he would still be as far off as ever from making living matter indigo used to be derived entirely from plants of that name one of the great triumphs of the organic chemist was when he produced artificial or synthetic indigo but he is as far off as ever from making the indigo plant it's claimed that synthetic rubber is exactly the same as natural rubber although some users say it's not quite the same still if it be so it's dead rubber not the living part of the plant the time then is infinitely far distant when the chemist will be able to make anything with the characteristics of life namely to grow by accretion from within and to reproduce its kind the most wonderful product of the laboratory is dead at most it simply resembles something which once was alive but that's somewhat of digression this dissertation on organic chemistry was simply intended to lead up to the question of liquid fuels all of which are organic in the life of today one of the most important things is petroleum this is a kind of liquid coal just how it was formed down in the depth of the earth is not clear one idea is that it's due to the decomposition of animal and vegetable matter another is that certain volcanic rocks which are known to contain carbide of iron might 
under the influence of steam have in bygone ages given off petroleum or paraffin to use the other name for the same thing in many parts of the world these deposits of oil are obtained by sinking wells and pumping up the oil in others the liquid gushes out without the necessity of pumping at all this is believed to be due to fact that water pressure is at work artesian wells from which the water rushes of its own accord are quite familiar and are due to the fact that some underground reservoir tapped by the well is fed through natural pipes really fissures in the rock from some point higher than the mouth of the well now supposing that a reservoir of oil were also in communication with the upper world in the same way the descending water would go to the bottom underneath the lighter oil and would thus lift it up so that on being tapped the oil would rush out another source of mineral oil is shale such as is to be found in vast deposits in the southeast of scotland this shale is mined much as coal is it's then heated in retorts as coal is heated at the gas works and the vapor which is given off on being condensed forms a liquid like crude petroleum in all these cases the original oil is a mixture of a great number of grades differing from each other in various ways they are all hydrocarbons which means compounds of carbon and hydrogen in their extent from simogen the molecules of which contain four atoms of carbon and ten of hydrogen to paraffin wax which has somewhere about thirty two of carbon to sixty six of hydrogen for practical purposes their most important difference is the temperature at which they boil or turn quickly into vapor this forms the means by which they are sorted out in a huge still like a steam boiler the crude or mixed oil is gradually heated and the gas given off is led to a cooling vessel where it's chilled back into liquid the lightest of all simogen is given off even at the freezing point of water that's led into one chamber and condensed there then as the temperature rises to eighteen degrees celsius rigolin is given off that's collected and condensed in another vessel between seventy degrees and hundred and twenty degrees petroleum ether and petroleum naphtha are produced and they together constitute what is commonly called petrol between hundred twenty degrees and hundred fifty degrees petroleum benzene arises all the foregoing taken together constitute about eight to ten percent of the whole crude oil then between hundred fifty degrees and three hundred degrees there comes off the great bulk of the oil nearly eighty percent the kerosene or paraffin which we burn in lamps above three hundred degrees 
there is obtained another oil which is used for lubrication, also the invaluable vaseline, and finally, when the steel is allowed to cool, there remains a solid residuum known as paraffin wax. This process is known as fractional distillation, and it will be noticed that it consists essentially in collecting and liquefying separately those vapors which are given off at different ranges of temperature. For our purpose in this chapter, we are mainly concerned with the petrol and the kerosene. Many efforts have been made in times gone by to use kerosene for firing the boilers of steam engines. In naval vessels, a great deal is so used at the present time. But the chief method of employing oil for generating power is to use it in an internal combustion engine. These machines have been dealt with at length in engineering of today and mechanical inventions of today and so must be simply mentioned here. They consist of two types. In one, which is exemplified by the ordinary car or bicycle motor, the oil is gasified in a vessel called a carburetor or vaporizer and then led into the cylinder of the engine together with the necessary air to enable it to burn. At the right moment, a spark ignites the mixture, which burns suddenly, causing a sudden expansion, in other words, an explosion. Thus the power of the engine is derived from a succession of explosions. If the fuel be petrol, it vaporizes at the ordinary temperature of the engine and needs no added heat. With kerosene, however, heat has to be employed in the vaporizer to make it turn readily into a gas. The other method is employed in engines of the new diesel type in which the cylinder of the engine, being already filled with hot air, has a jet of oil sprayed into it. The heat of the air causes it to burst into flame, causing an expansion which drives the engine. An important feature in the latter type of engine is that the oil is very completely burned so that very heavy oils can be used. Oils which, if employed in an engine of the other kind, would choke up the cylinder with soot. In other words, the range of oils which can be used in this new kind of engine is much wider than is possible in the others. The latter may be likened to a fastidious man who is very particular about his food, while the former resembles the man of hearty appetite who can eat anything. And just as a man of the latter sort is more easily provided for by the domestic authorities, so the diesel engine makes the problem of the provision of liquid fuel much simpler. For it must never be forgotten that the provision of liquid fuel for the world is by no means a simple matter, since the supply is by no means adequate. The output runs into thousands of millions of gallons, and the whole world is being searched 
for new fields of oil and yet it's all swallowed up as fast as it can be produced while the coal mines do not feel the competition a year or so ago the united states and russia between them and they are the greatest producers obtained five billion gallons of oil seemingly an enormous quantity but on the other hand great britain alone produces over 250 million tons of coal per annum if therefore liquid fuel is to displace coal as some people lightly think it's going to do the supply will have to be multiplied many times in the amount of heat which it is capable of giving the coal of great britain alone beats the oil produced by the whole world and another thing to be borne in mind is that as the coal miner goes down to the seam and sees for himself what's there while the oil producer simply stays at the surface and draws it up with a pump the coal man knows far more as to how much there is still left than the oil man does we know that the coal deposits will last for many years to come even if the production go on increasing whereas the oil supply may fall off in the near future instead of increasing and in both cases we are using up capital coal is not being made on the earth now at any rate in any appreciable quantity the stage of the earth's history favorable to the formation of coal measures has long gone by and the same probably applies to oil it is interesting in this connection to note that coal itself is to a certain extent or can be at all events a source of oil when coal is heated in order to make it give up its gas or to turn it into coke vapors are given off which on cooling become coal tar at one time regarded only as a crude sort of paint this is now the source from which many chemical substances are obtained varying from photographic chemicals to saccharine a substitute for sugar so valuable are these products that there is a brisk demand for the tar in other directions than the manufacture of oils but oils of various kinds are also obtained from it the first step in the operations is fractional distillation after the manner just described for petroleum the first fraction is coal tar naphtha then follows carbolic oil after that heavy or creosote oil anthracene oil and finally there remains in the steel on cooling a solid residue known as coal pitch the naphtha on being distilled again gives among other things benzene from which the famous aniline dyes are made and which is useful in many industries Crusoe is largely employed as a preservative for wood being forced into the timber under high pressure so that it penetrates right into it and tends to prevent rotting no matter how wet it may be
railway sleepers are thus treated small truck loads of them being run into a cast iron tunnel which is then sealed at both ends while the curset is forced in by powerful pumps after such treatment they can lie nearly buried in the damp ballast for a long time without any deterioration these coal tar substances are all very similar to petroleum and its products hydrocarbons compounds of hydrogen and carbon in various proportions many of them could be used for fuel but since they are based upon the supply of coal which is itself limited they cannot however they may be used do more than stave off the evil day when the supply will be exhausted quite different is it with alcohol which it seems likely may be the fuel of the future some people will be inclined to exclaim what a pity to burn it since to many the word conveys ideas of another sort altogether there are many nowadays however who like the writer have none but a scientific interest in it to such whisky for example is but impure alcohol and it's without impurities that it may become of vast use to the world thereby possibly repaying man for some of the harm which in the past it has inflicted upon him alcohol again is a hydrocarbon it's really more correct to speak of it in the plural as alcohols since there is a large group of substances all of the same name two of these are of the greatest importance methyl alcohol and ethyl alcohol the former is obtained from wood hence it's sometimes called wood spirit wood is strongly heated in an iron steel and the methyl alcohol is given off in the form of vapor which on being collected and cooled condenses into a liquid it's exceedingly unpleasant to the taste if it were the only kind there would be no consumption of alcohol as a drink the second kind mentioned is obtained by the agency of germs or microbes and the story of its production is so interesting as to demand a little space we will commence with the maltster he performs the first part of the operation starting with ordinary barley by the action of heat aided by natural growth he produces the raw material on which the brewer may work now barley like all grain is largely made up of starch and although starch will not make alcohol it can be turned into sugar which will so the task of the monster is to commence the change of the starch in the grain into sugar first of all it's soaked in water and spread upon floors and heated until it begins to sprout there is a little part in each grain called the endosperm which is the embryonic plant and the starch is really the food provided by nature to nourish the growing endosperm until such time as it shall be strong enough to draw its nourishment 
from the soil. In order that it may not be washed away prematurely, the starch is locked up by nature in closely fastened cells, and moreover, it's insoluble so that water cannot carry it away. The endosperm, however, has at its disposal certain substances known as enzymes, and it increases its store of these as it grows, one of which is able to dissolve away the walls of the cells, to unlock the treasures as it were, while the other turns the insoluble starch into soluble matter, in which state the growing organism is able to make use of it as food. So as the grain sprouts upon the monster's floor, this process is going on. The cells are being opened, and their contents converted from starch into soluble matters. Then, when the growth has gone far enough, the grain is transferred to a kiln where it is subjected to heat by which the growth is stopped. The living part of the grain is in fact killed. That's mainly to stop the young plant from eating up the altered starch, which it would do if allowed time, but which the brewer wants to be kept for his own use. The maltster's task is now finished, and we come to the brewer's. The first thing he does with the malt is to crush it between rolls, thereby liberating thoroughly those substances which have been formed from the starch and which he intends to turn into sugar. Having crushed it, he places it in the mesh tun, a large tank of wood or iron, in which it's mixed with water and subjected to heat. While in this vessel the enzymes become active again and turn the soluble starch or a part of it into a kind of sugar. The liquid drawn off from the mesh tun, containing of course the sugar, is subsequently boiled, numerous flavoring matters, including hops, are added, and then it's cooled again, ready for the final process, fermentation. This takes place in a large wet or tongue and is brought about by the agency of yeast which is added to the liquid. Now yeast is a multitude of microscopic plants round in shape and about one three thousandths of an inch in diameter. Though so small, this little organism is really quite complicated in its structure and within its little body they are carried on complicated chemical changes which baffle entirely the most learned chemist to imitate. Further, he has yet to find out how the little yeast plant does it. He not only cannot imitate the process, he doesn't know what the process is. These little organisms multiply mainly by the process of budding. A new one grows out of the side of each old one, rapidly reaches maturity, breaks away and commences an independent existence. No sooner it's free than it, in turn, gives birth to another. Indeed, so great is its hurry to propagate itself that sometimes the new cell begins to throw out a bud 
before it has itself separated from its parent. It's therefore easy to see that yeast increases in quantity by what some call leaps and bounds, but which the mathematically minded know as geometrical progression. The particular form of sugar with which we are concerned here is known as dextroglucose. This, the yeast, splits up into alcohol and carbonic acid gas. The latter bubbles up to the surface and escapes into the air, while the alcohol becomes dissolved in the watery liquid. It is believed that the yeast performs this operation not directly, but by the production of certain enzymes, which in their turn act upon the sugar. The liquid so formed is beer, but since its alcohol, with which we are concerned, and not beer, many details connected with its manufacture have been omitted. Enough has been said, however, to show that, by comparatively simple processes, grain of all sorts, in fact, anything which contains starch and such things are to be found in worldwide profusion, can be turned into alcohol. All the really intricate chemical functions are performed readily and cheaply by living organisms. All man has to do is to set up the conditions under which the organisms can work. In the process just described, only a portion of the starch in the grain is converted into sugar. Hence the percentage of alcohol in beer is comparatively small. If all the starch be converted a liquid, much stronger in alcohol is produced, and if that be distilled, so as to separate the spirit from the water with which it's mixed, there results whiskey. Brandy, likewise, is the spirit distilled from wine, rum from molasses, and so on. In all these familiar beverages, the essential feature is this same alcohol of the variety known as ethyl alcohol. It will be noticed that in the making of beer, the alcohol is actually formed in water. There is a sugary water which under the action of the yeast becomes an alcoholic water, and this indicates a very useful future about the liquid when used for industrial purposes. A tank full of petrol is extremely dangerous, so much so that the storage of petrol is hedged about by all manner of precautions. The danger is that it gives off an inflammable vapor, and that if it once begins to burn, there is particularly no possibility of putting it out. Being lighter than water, it simply glows with a layer of fire any water which may be thrown onto it. The water in such circumstances simply serves to spread the naming petrol about and so to make matters worse. Now alcohol, with its partiality for the companionship of water, behaves quite differently. True, it also may give off an inflammable vapor, but if a quantity of it catch fire, it can be extinguished in the usual way by a fire engine. 
the water and alcohol immediately combine the alcohol becomes dissolved in the water just as sugar may do and as soon as the percentage of water in the mixture becomes considerable the burning stops it may be that some readers will have discovered this fact for themselves without knowing precisely what it was it is a common dodge with amateur photographers if they want to dry a negative quickly to immerse it in methylated spirit the spirit seems to take the water out of the film and itself drying quickly leaves the negative in a perfectly dry condition in a few minutes now after using spirit in that way it's useless to put it in a stove or a lamp it will not burn methylated spirit is alcohol and the reason why it has such a quick drying action is that it and the water in the wet film quickly mix after immersion the film is wet not with water merely but with a mixture of a lot of spirit and a little water hence the speed with which it evaporates and the non-inflammability of the mixture is due to the presence of the water methylated spirit only differs from the alcohol in alcoholic beverages in that something is added to make it undrinkable owing to the craving for it which is so widespread and the doubtful effect which it has on certain citizens most states regard it as preeminently a subject for taxation thereby on the one hand bringing in a good revenue and on the other discouraging its too free use but those considerations apply only to drinkable alcohol that which is to be used for industrial purposes is not in any way a legitimate object for taxation hence the problem arises of making a form of alcohol which shall answer all the needs of the industries which use it and at the same time be so repulsive to the senses that no one can possibly drink it this result is achieved by adding some of the methyl alcohol derived from the vapor given off by wood when heated commonly known as wood spirit this is so unpleasant that it renders the mixture of no use for drinking and so it can safely be freed from taxation unfortunately this spirit has less heating value than petrol that means that a given quantity of each liquid will produce more heat in the case of petrol than in the case of alcohol indeed the difference is about two to one hence an engine to give out a certain horsepower would need to have its cylinders twice as big if it were to use alcohol instead of the other fuel there is a certain compensation however in the fact that alcohol is very easily compressible in modern internal combustion engines much of the efficiency is due to the explosive charge which is drawn into the cylinder being compressed into a small space before it's fired it was the discovery of the value of compressing the gas 
which made the gas engine so formidable a rival to the steam engine and the wonderful performances of the diesel engines are due very largely to the fact that the air is compressed in the cylinder to a very high pressure. The jet of oil burns in highly compressed air, and because of the facility with which alcohol can be compressed, it is said to be more effective as a source of motive power than would be expected from its comparatively feeble heat. Thus we may sum up the possibilities of the future. Coal, petroleum and their derivatives exist in limited quantities in the world and so far as we can see the vast drafts which we are taking from them are not being replaced. Indeed, at this stage of the Earth's development cannot be replaced by any more. Sooner or later, we must come to an end of them. Is it not comforting, therefore, to know that there is another source of fuel at hand, inexhaustible, since it can be produced as needed? We have only to set the sun and the ground to work to produce grain, rice, potatoes, or any of the myriad substances which contain starch, and from that, by simple and well-known processes, we can obtain a cheap, safe and reliable fuel. Indeed, there seems nothing but the ultimate loss of sunlight, countless millions of years hence, which can ever check the supply of this valuable commodity. What has doubtless in many cases been a curse in the past may turn out to be the great boon of the future. End of section 3